Well, good morning. I love to hear the sound of Max Exodus right about when I'm about to preach. It's, it's really good. No, it's just great to hear uh, the voices of our kids uh, go to be taught in their setting. Well, we have uh, been watching the news in recent days uh, quite closely. I would imagine most of us have been uh, as we have been observing uh, what the latest news is about this flight that has been missing, Malaysian Flight 370. And it's been interesting as we look and, and, and watch the different reports and, and everybody is trying to figure out this incredibly mysterious disappearance and the fact that there was no distress signal, that there was no last message that was left other than a very calm pilot saying goodnight. Um, and so it's been a very intriguing thing as people are, are scouring the ocean and looking for the remains of this plane and also uh, eventually looking for the black box in, in terms of the things that it will tell. Because the things that it will tell are those final moments. And it will tell about some very important things that matter and that actually explain and make some sense out of this mystery that has been in front of us. Final words. Final words reflect things that are significant to us. They reflect some of the conditions and the circumstances and the context of what is happening in those moments. And they also point us to things that really, truly matter. In, uh, if you think back, well, no, okay, most of you can't think back this far, but about 75 years ago, we know the story maybe of Amelia Earhart and another story of an airplane that went missing. And uh, someone who was a very brave aviator, the first female aviator who flew, flew solo over the Atlantic Ocean, whose plane went missing and disappeared on July 2nd, 1937. And her last words were recorded in a couple of different settings. One of those was a letter to her husband just prior to her last flight. And part of those words to her husband in this letter were this. She said, please know that I'm quite aware of the hazards. Women must try to do things as men have tried. And when they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. And then her last radio communication that was recorded, apparently, were these final words where she said over the radio, K-H-A-Q-Q, calling Atasca, we must be on you but cannot see you, gas is running low. Final words. And so we have last words from different people that are significant because of the context. Just a couple of years ago, we had some other significant last words and a a unique era in our political landscape here in Canada where we actually had not only a sitting member of parliament, but actually a leader of one of our political parties who died in office. That was Jack Layton, as you remember, died on August 22nd, 2011. And 48 hours, apparently, before, his, before he passed away, he wrote a two-page, very personal letter uh, that was addressed to a number of different people. He wrote about his own personal struggle with cancer. He wrote some words of encouragement to those who are also struggling with cancer. He wrote some recommendations uh, to his political party. He even spoke some very specific words of recommendation to his caucus and some things of maybe what should happen. He wrote some words to Quebecers particularly. He wrote some words to young Canadians. And then he also wrote some words to Canada as a whole. And if you remember during that time, we, we saw this last phrase or this last paragraph quite often as it followed on the news where he said these closing words. He said, my friends, love is better than anger. Hope is better than fear. Optimism is better than despair. So let us be loving, hopeful, and optimistic, and we'll change the world. All my very best, Jack Layton. 
So again, just another example of last words. They point to those things that matter to a person. They point to things that matter in life. They reveal things. They, they get to the core of things. Uh, many, many people, as they enter into their last days of recent years anyways, oftentimes go uh, and, and blog about their experience at different times. And some of you have followed some of those people. Maybe some of you are following some of those people right now. As people uh, enter into those last days or last years or last whatever time they have left on this earth, they find some ability to grieve and to process by actually blogging about it and putting it on the internet and allowing the world to listen in. And you get a bit of a sense of what's going on in their heart and in their mind. And it is profound, raw, last words that are expressed of people. So one of the questions I would want to leave you with this morning is, if you were to write some of those last words of your life, what would they be? What would you write? What would you include? What would be significant to you? What would you want to declare? What would you want to share with the world, with your family, with others? In Matthew chapter 28, we have some of the most profound last words of all of history. As Jesus, as he is finishing his earthly ministry, and he knows that his disciples are troubled, he knows his disciples are concerned, and they're struggling with this idea that he is leaving. And he tells his disciples this, he says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands that I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then in Acts chapter 1, we also see some other last words of Jesus just before the ascension, before he returns to his heavenly Father in this in-between time, after his death and uh, his resurrection, and now before he returns to the Father. And again, the disciples are, are with him again, and they're asking questions about this kingdom of God that he keeps talking about, and the timing of that. And he replies to them, he says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. These are some of the last words of Jesus in his earthly ministry. And so, last words point us to things that are very significant. These words of Jesus have guided the church and fueled the church and and began the, the movement of the early church that has continued throughout the ages. These words that we hang on to as he talked about discipleship, about being witnesses, about going and telling people about this good news of Jesus Christ. And today as we continue on in our series, uh, we step into some last words. If you have not been part of this series or maybe you're just joining us here today, we've been walking through 1 Timothy and now just stepping into a book called 2 Timothy. These letters that have been written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. And so the name of the book is, is written for or named after the recipient of these letters in this case. And Paul is writing to this young leader in the church in Ephesus who's going uh, through some challenges. It's a troubling context. It's a challenging context in the city of Ephesus. And Paul is writing some last words because Timothy, 2 Timothy, is Paul's last letter that we have recorded. I mean, here's a man, Paul, who wrote 13 of the 27 letters that we read about in the New Testament. 
Over 30% of the text, of all the text in the New Testament, was written by him. Inspired by God himself of this declaration of God's intent and, and things that God has wanted to say. And he used Paul as a, as a vehicle to do that. And so even after writing 13 different letters, 2 Timothy is his last one. He's sitting in prison and he's waiting to be executed. He, know that his, he knows that his time is nearing the end. So he knows that this is the last chance to kind of put something out there. And he writes to his young disciple, Timothy, his famous last words. And so I want, to have, I want us to have that in mind as we go through these next weeks and as we look at 2 Timothy, that these are those last words of the Apostle Paul written to Timothy, of words of encouragement, words of staying true to sound doctrine. He says, have a steadfast faith. He says, you need to continue in a confident endurance in your life, and you need to have a lasting love. I mean, these are just some of the themes that come through in this text, and, and we'll see some of that. I mentioned in 1 Timothy, when we were in that book, that there was a sense of urgency in 1 Timothy, where Paul is just trying to get out all this important stuff, and so he's declaring these things, and he comes around to these things again, and he's kind of urgent. He's talking about urgent and important things in 1 Timothy. Now, 2 Timothy, it feels different. The sense of urgency is kind of gone, in a way. Paul is way more reflective. This is a couple of years later, after he wrote 1 Timothy, and so he's more reflective, and he's, he's talking about some different things. And one of the things that comes out really clearly in this letter is the importance of relationships, which I think is so fitting and so true as a person is facing their death, and they know that their end is near. What really matters now and what really comes to the forefront are relationships, and you get a sense of how close Paul was with Timothy. And we'll see that as we read the first verses in just a minute. And I've entitled this message, The Highs and Lows of Discipleship. Because Paul is in this discipling relationship with Timothy. And, and when it comes to discipleship, relationships are everything. Relationships, they matter so much. And yet we know that because relationships are involved, it gets messy. It gets hard. Now, maybe if you're somebody who is new to church or you're somebody who's still trying to figure out what this whole God thing is about and who God is in your life, maybe the word discipleship feels like an odd word and you don't really know, okay, what, what does discipleship mean? What is, what is that word? If Paul's discipling Timothy and Timothy's discipling the church, what, what do we think of or what do we, how do we understand that word? You might be more familiar with a word like mentorship or apprenticeship. Those are common words that are talked about more and more in these days. And they have some similarities, but yet at the same time, I think discipleship has some very unique aspects, as we'll see today. But even for those of us, I think, who've grown up in the church, when we think about the word discipleship, we're not always exactly sure what to do with it either. And I think we don't really understand it well also. We maybe speak about it a fair bit, and we understand it in terms of its technical meaning, but I think it's a word, too, that that we, we speak about and articulate a lot more than we actually live out in effective ways. And when you think back to Jesus' last words that he spoke in Matthew 28, he said, this is, this is the commission, this is the mandate that I'm giving you. Go and make disciples. So it's a word that we need to understand more fully. It's a word that we need to get our heads around and also to get our lives around about what does it mean to be disciples? And what does it mean to be disciples of others as well, if these are such important words that Jesus spoke 
and also that Paul is speaking to Timothy. So as I mentioned, discipleship is so much about relationship. It always happens in the context of relationship. And we see that here in the opening words of 2 Timothy chapter 1. And I want to read the first four verses where Paul says, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've been sent out to tell others about the life that he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. And I'm writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace and mercy and peace. And Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience just as my ancestors did. Night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. And I long to see you again. For I remember your tears as we parted and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. Intimate words. They're words that reflect relationship. A really close relationship. Paul calls Timothy my dear son. He says, I thank God for you. And I think of you so often and I pray for you constantly. You do that with people that you love. You do that with people that you are so close to and that you care so much about their well-being. He says, we had tears when we parted. We were, we were crying when we parted because we meant so much to each other. And so there are tears that are part of this. And then he also says, but there is going to be incredible joy when we meet again. And so you see, even in these opening verses, the, the relationship that Paul and Timothy had and the intimacy that they had as co-workers laboring in the kingdom of God, doing these things that were so significant and important, but also so very hard at times. And so you get a a sense of that. But think about it for the other side for a minute. Think about Timothy holding this letter one day, written by his dear friend and his disciple Paul, and, and reading through this letter, probably just sitting alone somewhere, not with anybody else around him, and just reading the pages of this letter, and then think about this relationship that they had. And now, if you look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, you see how Paul knew that his time was drawing to a close. Because he says, as for me, my life has already been poured out as an offering to God. The time of my death is near. And he goes on to that well-known passage where he says, I have fought the good fight. I mean, can you imagine Timothy? He's sitting in the quietness of his home or somewhere, and he's reading this letter from Paul. And, and Paul is basically saying, you know, I'm waiting execution. I'm going to die soon. And the emotion that would be there for Timothy as he reads these words from his mentor, from his discipler, from this person that he looked up to. So discipleship is life on life. Discipleship requires time. It requires an investment of energy. It it, it requires an investment of ourselves in another. We, We have to be investing ourselves in the life of another in order for effective discipleship to happen. Discipleship doesn't happen at a distance. It doesn't happen only when we keep ourselves removed from people. You have to be invested in the lives of people. And so that's the kind of relationship that they have where, where people that are serving together, people that pray together, people that work together, people that eat meals together. And Paul and Timothy had that kind of relationship. You know, there's probably no more significant place that discipleship happens than in a home. Then in the context of a family where you start to see the unique, and, and, uh, the unique gifts that people have and the unique ways that people are wired. And, and, and families are a very unique context of discipleship. And in verse 5, as we continue reading, we, we see Paul pointing that out and mentioning that and affirming that in Timothy. 
And he says in verse 5, I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. And discipleship, as I said, can happen in a family like nowhere else. There's an intensity of relationship. There's the genetic things that are happening of people being kind of wired the same, but yet then there's personalities that are so different, and so we rub each other the wrong way. There's just being in each other's space every day. So our family of origin, it shapes us. It makes us in so many ways who we are, for good and for bad. So as I sit with young marrieds or in a counseling session with people who are about to get married, we we talk about that. We talk about our families of origin and this idea that, that we are made in a certain way. So whether you're married or whether you're single, whatever the case may be, but that you are a, a product of your environment in so many ways that you grew up in, whatever that looked like. And, and we know that there are intentional things that we want to bring forward that are really good. But we also know that there are some things of our family of origin that we don't want to bring forward. We want to chart a new path. We want to go in a whole new direction. So even in those settings that I mentioned that I talk about, we talk about those things. And I say, you know what? You need to understand your parents and your grandparents and your family of origin and appreciate the good that has come from their lives, but also recognize that there are things that you are going to want to leave behind. That's okay. Every generation needs to do that. I mean, I look at my life now sometimes and I just, I shudder. I'll do something. You've done this too, where... I will do something and I'll just, I'll just stop for a moment and go, wow, that was my dad. Like, that was just so my dad. Anybody else identify with that? And, and you're going like, oh, I used to mock that of my dad and now I'm doing that. Right? And, and so it happens. I mean, and, and so even with our kids, like Lisa and I tell our kids, like, you know what? There are things about our marriage and about our life and our context here that you're going to want to take forward and it's really good and it's great. And there are things that you have experienced that you are frankly going to need counseling for. I, mean, I think every pastor's kids needs a separate budget just for counseling. I mean, decompression chamber. But it's true. I mean, every, that's true for every one of us. If, if you have kids, you will have situations where you need, they need to sort of bring some things forward, but other things that they need to just leave behind because it is not going to help them moving forward. It's true of all of us. It's true of all of us. And so Paul sees that in in. Timothy, and he encourages that, and he says, you know what, Timothy, you have such a great heritage. Your mother and your grandmother, these women of faith, they built into you, and they shaped this faith of yours. And hopefully most of us, many of you, will have some of those kind of heritage where you have those who have gone before you who have planted seeds of faith. I'm so thankful for my mother and my grandmother who have planted seeds of faith in me. And my mom is one who is just this quiet, gentle spirit, but she's a woman of risk and a a woman of adventure, even though she so often wasn't able to live that out. But I I saw throughout my life different places where that came through and that inspired me. And my grandmother, who is her mom, who was just this woman who loved to laugh and she had this great sense of humor and a woman of faith. And even when her husband died, my grandpa, when he died, she continued on to be so involved in the church. And I remember when she was in her 80s, and I remember meeting her one time and her saying how, uh, yeah, she was just leading this divorce care class. You know, she was teaching this class. And I said, like, really? What? You're doing what? He goes, well, you know, I just have a real burden for those people who've gone through divorce. And so and here's this woman in her 80s who's never experienced divorce, but, you know, she just had this burden. And I thought I would try this. You know, it'd be good. And I thought, wow, like, good for you. Like, who does that? 
You know, and so I am thankful that there is some of that where I can point to and go, thank you, Lord. There's faithfulness that is there. There are examples that are there. And that's why, you know, in our church, family ministries is such a significant component of how we approach being the church. Why we have, we talk about parents, you know, you need to lead your kids spiritually. You need to engage in them. But we also have other people who are speaking the same things that you're saying into their lives And we have so many adult mentors and disciplers who are pouring into them, even right now in their small groups, which is so important because it's a shaping time, both for the very young and also for the old, that of every generation, that we are part of a broader family context because the family is such an incredible place of discipleship and of ministry. You look back in Psalm 78, and it's it's a great text that we often quote around here when it comes to family ministries. In verse 4, The psalmist says this, We did not hide these truths from our children. We will tell them to the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord and about his power and his mighty works. Then in verse 7, So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. And this truth that as parents and as grandparents and as great-grandparents, we need to be intentional about passing on these things of faith to our children. So that every generation will know. So that every generation will set their hopes anew on God. In a new way. With a fresh faith. That is their own faith. That's not going to look like ours. It's going to be expressed completely differently. But that's okay. But this truth that they will know this one true God. And that generation after generation. That this truth will come home. And people will be encouraged with this faith. Timothy was a recipient of this kind of blessing. Now I want to. Just say an aside here for a minute. If you're somebody who maybe hasn't had that family of origin kind of context, and maybe your family of origin has only left you with a whole bunch of pain. And I know for, unfortunately, too many people that is true. But there are still so many truths in Scripture, and one of my favorite texts when it comes to that is found right in the middle of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And there's this unique verse or a couple of verses in here that says it this way. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. And even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. I don't fully understand what all this means. But it's talking about the context of idolatry here and how you should not have any other gods before me. And this truth that There are generations where there is that idolatry that happens where people turn their backs on God, have nothing to do with God, and they go a whole different path. And there is an implication that can happen for generations, but it says for three and four generations. But then it also says, but those who choose to obey me and those who choose to follow my paths and those who choose to say, I'm not going to take this from my past and bring it forward. I'm going to chart a new path, go a new direction, and I'm going to start a whole new journey and a whole new testimony of faith. It says, I will lavish on them for a thousand generations. And what I just noticed in there is the contrast of the implication of the one versus the implication of the other. That for those who choose to follow God and say, no, 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 I'm going to write a different story by the grace of God. And we're going to kind of break off some of these things of the path and we're going to chart a new course that there is a blessing of God that comes upon those who choose to do that for a thousand generations. It's a beautiful picture. And I want you to know that where your family of origin has not been a place of grace or a place of discipleship, that God can do a very new work in you and start a whole new generation and a new legacy that begins now. 
and looks very different than maybe what you experienced. Verse 6 and 7 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul continues on and he says this, This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline. I think these are just some of the greatest verses in all of Scripture and definitely in these, in these texts here. But they, they do raise some questions for us. Paul says, fan them into flame. And you kind of wonder, well, okay, if, if there's a spiritual gift that's been given by God, is it able to just sort of die down and sort of go dormant for a while? It seems to be. And, and what role does God play? Because God has given these gifts to Timothy. And what role do we play? Because Paul says to me, he says, Timothy, I want you to fan into flame these gifts. So are we able to sort of rekindle with an act of the will these gifts of God that are lying there within us? Is it about God doing this or about us doing this? And I think this text points to this interplay of both. That yes, ultimately, it is only by the grace of God and by the gifts of God that he gives you, but we have a role to play in that. And Paul is saying to Timothy, he says, you know what? You need to fan these into flame. And Paul addresses one of the most common human emotions that we face, and that's fear. And this emotion, he he says it this way. He says, for God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity. Hasn't given you that. That's not of God. Because fear is probably the most significant thing that holds us back from doing the things that God has called us to do. Which is why the number one commandment in all of Scripture, as we've talked about, is is do not fear. Over and over again, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God says to his people, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. Because he knows that fear immobilizes us. Fear keeps us back. It makes us shrink back from doing the things that God has called us to do. And so Paul is saying that same thing here to Timothy, and he says, do not fear. You haven't been given the spirit of fear and timidity. You've been given a very, very different spirit. It's, it's this, you've been given the spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. He's saying to Timothy, you have all that you need to combat this. Timothy didn't need a new revelation necessarily from God. Didn't need new gifts. Paul is just kind of saying, you have everything that you need. God has given you all that you need. You need to fan this into flame and you need to embrace it and you need to walk in it. You need to step into your identity. This is who God has called you to be. This is the gifts that God has given you to use. And you need to use them. And these three, I think, are just so essential in discipleship. This power of the Holy Spirit. You have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the Spirit that lives within you, Timothy, and in you, church. And Paul is saying you need to embrace that. You need to claim that. You need to step into that. You need to walk in that truth. And you have this spirit of love that is also not from you. Because there is no way that you can love God's people and love all people the way you need to by your own strength. And it's only by the love of God himself and how he modeled that love through Jesus Christ that you have any ability whatsoever to love other people. And again, this context, as we've been talking about in Ephesus, that Timothy is facing is not an easy context. He's got conflict. He's got people opposing him all around. He's got a very challenging task. And Paul is saying, you need to love these people way beyond any capacity that you have to love. It is not of you. You can only do this by the grace of God. But then he also says, self-discipline. And we go, wow, I don't like that part. 
And it's this whole idea that there's this interplay, again, between God and what we do, and that there is a self-discipline there that, Timothy, you need to also step into this, and you need to discipline yourselves to walk in this. Sometimes that self-discipline part is is the hardest part. And I shared with the team this morning a funny situation just experienced this morning. Um, I had to drop my daughter off at the university early this morning. And so as I was doing that, I ran into a familiar face that I'd seen years ago. And, and I often go to the universities to do sermon prep on Thursdays. And I've been doing that for years. And there was a period of time there where it just seemed like every time I was there on a Thursday morning, get there at whatever, 8, 8.30. And I'd be sitting there in my truck and just, you know, listening to the radio or having a coffee and maybe a lemon loaf or something like that from Starbucks and just enjoying that. And then there was this guy, and some of you know him. His name is Dr. Cyprian Nwani. He's this Olympic athlete who's now a doctor. He's some of your doctors, maybe. And he would always come running by right when I was sitting there eating my lemon loaf and drinking my coffee. And, and he would have a backpack on, and, and it would be weighted down, and I could tell. And he was sweating profusely. And I mean, he was just, and he's older than I am, and he's just this epitome of fitness and everything. And I just thought, you turkey. Like, <laughs> like it just ruined my moment, you know? And so then this morning, I'm sitting there, and I go to this stop sign. I almost run into this person who's running past me with his dog. And I'm looking, and I, you've got to be kidding me. And here he is again, the same guy all bundled up and just running around the university. And I thought, okay, God, what are you wanting to tell me about self-discipline here? But it's the part of this text that we don't always know what to do with. And we, we look at it and we go, okay, well, we do have a part to play. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, you have a role to play in this. There is a self-discipline aspect of it that you need to also claim and embrace and to walk in in this area of discipleship. Then we come to this next section, verses 8 to 14, and I want to read it. And it gets us back to these words of entrusted, that this gospel message that Paul has uh, declared to Timothy, that, that God's entrusted to us. And I love how throughout these letters, we've seen a number of places where Paul will, kind of, will sort of summarize the gospel. And he'll, he'll sort of capture it all in a, just a few lines. And he does it here again. And so he'll deal with all these issues and he'll address this and address this conflict and say, do this, don't do, you know, and he's addressing all these things. And then he'll come with this gospel message again, like he does right here in these verses. And apparently in the Greek, and I don't study Greek, but I've read that they say in the Greek, this is all one sentence. So everything I'm going to read is one sentence. There's no paragraph, there's no breaks, there's no periods, commas, nothing. It just rolls. So you can imagine Paul writing this. He says, so never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. And he did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Jesus Christ. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way of life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That's why I'm suffering here in prison. But I'm not ashamed of it. For I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me. A pattern shaped by the faith and the love that you have in Christ Jesus. And through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. So here we have this passionate section of the letter that we can imagine Paul writing out all in one sentence, just this big long run-on sentence with all this passion as he's talking again about 
this gospel that you've been entrusted with. Timothy, he says, guard it. He says, discipline yourself. Hold on to it. You need to persevere in this. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be incredibly difficult. But he says this gospel message, because of what Jesus Christ has done and all of these things that he says here, this was God's plan before the beginning of time to show us his grace through Jesus Christ. And how Jesus broke the power of death, illuminating the way to life and immortality through this good news. This is the gospel that you've been entrusted with, Timothy. Hold on to it. Pursue it. Discipline yourselves in it. You've been entrusted with something incredibly valuable. And then we read in verse 15 some of the lows of discipleship. Where Paul says, As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phagellus and Hermogenes. That's a really short line. You don't really think about that too much, but I wonder if the pain of desertion and the pain of abandonment that Paul felt from these individuals was not more than anything he had ever experienced physically. When you think of the Apostle Paul and you think about how he poured his life into people and how he gave up everything because of this incredible gospel and he invested in people and discipled people and came alongside of people and he loved people by the grace of God. And then to have those people that you have been discipling and those people that you have been loving and those people that you have been investing in to abandon you and to desert you completely. I can only imagine the kind of pain that that would be for Paul. So here he sort of writes this as a brief warning to Timothy because he says this too will be part of your discipleship journey because you're going to hurt sometimes. Because if you invest in the lives of people, And if you open yourselves up to truly love people and to be loved by others, you will get hurt. That's one of the truths that we see in Scripture. It's one of the truths that we see in all of life because it's what we experience. We get into relationships and we love on people and then something happens where there's an abandonment or a desertion or disappointment or disillusionment or something that happens that hurts us profoundly. And Paul says that's also part of our painful discipleship. As God grows us up in the faith, and we can't always explain why these things happen, but we need to learn to continue on and to respond in healthy ways from that. Because we can shrink back and we can decide, well, we're going to just protect ourselves now and I'm not going to love anymore. I'm going to just guard my heart and guard my life and just keep people at a distance and then I won't get hurt again. And some people do that for a while, but you start to kind of shrivel up and die inside when you do that too long. Because you're not willing to expose yourself to other people and to expose yourself to what God wants to do through other people in your life. So I would hear Paul saying, in a sense, to Timothy and to us, don't guard yourself so much that you're not willing to be hurt anymore. Because part of our discipleship is a willingness to be hurt in that way because you've got to be vulnerable with people. You have to take risks again. Then Paul goes on, and right after that, he talks, after he talks about this low in discipleship, he talks about an incredible high. And he says, May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus. Boy, I butcher that. And all his family, because he often visited and encouraged me. 
And he was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. We can all identify with some of those kind of people who breathe life into us. And they might not even recognize that they're doing it. They don't maybe think of it too intentionally, but, but they might just speak a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of truth that they speak into our lives, and it just means more than they will ever know. And we want to surround ourselves with those people, right? Life givers, not the ones that drain us in any way. But that we would also be those kind of people to others as part of our discipling others, that, that we would be people who would speak words of encouragement, words of promise, words of hope, words of a future, words of blessing to other people, as this individual did for Paul. Because it changed him. And he's declaring the truth of this man and how this person just encouraged him. And he says, Timothy, you know what? You need to just, I pray that God will show special kindness to him. May his tribe increase those people who encourage. And he's saying these are significant people. And those will also be part of your life of discipleship. Those are the highs. When things go well. And when people build you up. And you have the opportunity to do that to others. So in closing, I want to just sort of summarize a few thoughts about discipleship and this question of what is required in discipleship, what is involved in discipleship. And here, I think, are a few from this text. Beyond those profound words that he says, you've been given the spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Those are absolutely essential. But I would also say that discipleship takes intentionality. It takes boldness and intentionality. Discipleship doesn't just happen. Paul was very intentional in his discipleship of Timothy. He went out of his way to write him, to visit him, to be with him, to go there, to spend time together. So discipleship takes intentionality. Discipleship also takes focus. Groups can gather around all kinds of different purposes and meanings. Mentorship can happen around all kinds of different life lessons and work environments and all kinds of different things. But discipleship is all about discipleship of Jesus Christ. And these verses that we read earlier in the service and that we read earlier in this text that talk about who Jesus is and the, the centrality of Jesus Christ and this gospel of hope that we proclaim. And discipleship is all about that and focus. So discipleship happens in a very focused way. In order for discipleship to happen, we need to learn to love others. Which means that we also open ourselves up to hurt. And we recognize that there is a humility that is involved in discipleship. Because love is absolutely essential to that. Just speaking truth in all of its harshness is not discipleship. It's speaking truth in love because you really love another person. And you're willing to walk with them through some difficult times and difficult challenges. So therefore, discipleship always also involves pain. Because sometimes there's disappointment and suffering. Paul experienced that many times. Discipleship also involves time. Time to be invested in the lives of others, which is why partially we need to create margin in our lives so that we can spend time with other people. And sometimes that is one of our biggest challenges in discipleship. For Paul, it, it meant years together, not days or months. It meant years committed to each other. Discipleship is also 
I think, always in two directions. And sometimes we think of it only in one direction, but it's always in, in two directions. And even as us, as we think about the great commission that Jesus gave us to go and to make disciples, we can only do that if we ourselves are disciples also. And so discipleship always has an entry point. It has something that is feeding into our lives from the Word of God and from other people in our lives and the Spirit of God working in our lives that we are humble enough to be a recipient of what God wants for us in whatever way he wants to bring those things into our lives. So we are on the receiving end and receiving that from others and from God in different ways. But then also there's an outflow. There's a direction that goes in the other way that we are also investing in the lives of other people intentionally, with time, proactively, loving them in very unique and distinct ways that we have a discipleship that is focused in that direction as well too. And so the challenge for us as we think about this text and how it related not just to Timothy and to this church there, but to us today, is are we being those disciples that Jesus calls us to be? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ. That we are allowing others to pour into our lives and allowing the Word of God to speak to us and the Spirit of God to speak to us and change us and form us. And then also are we involved intentionally in the lives of others in some way, and it might be in the smallest things, Words of encouragement have more profound discipleship impact than you will ever know. But that we would be those kinds of intentional disciples of Jesus Christ. As the worship team comes up to lead us in this closing song, I would just ask you uh, to pray with me as we conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you for the powerful truths of this text. Thank you for the rawness of real lives that are laid out before us and of being able to see Paul and Timothy in the vulnerability of disappointment and pain, to see life lessons being taught in the context that was really messy and hard, and to see the reality of what true discipleship looks like, that it has many highs and it has many lows. And there's a call to perseverance and self-discipline but that there's also a power that is available to us by the work of your Holy Spirit in ways that we cannot imagine. So Lord, I pray for each of us here that you would help us to recognize that if we have chosen to follow you and if we have given our lives to you, that we do not have this spirit of fear and timidity that is not of the Lord, but that we have this spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to us again. Help us to claim that. Help us to step into that identity and that truth. And God, for those that are here today and who maybe aren't at that place yet or don't know where they stand exactly with God, would you just show them through your Holy Spirit some of what you want to do in their lives? And would you encourage them? Maybe they're the ones that have come from a family background that is really hard and painful. and, And God, would you just show them and remind them that there is a new future that is available to them because of what you have done? And that they don't have to be Uh, identified by that, that that does not have to be their identity going forward. It doesn't frame all of their lives, but that they can have a new experience and start new generations of incredible faith and blessing because of what you have done. So Lord, would you help us to be faithful disciples, both people on the receiving end and those who give our lives to others extravagantly through all the highs and all the lows that come with that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.